Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to you all here in the Museum of London, and also to those of you who are joining us by live streaming for the second Gresham Lecture in Divinity for the year 2017 to 18. And tonight we're looking at this fascinating theme of watching the heavens. What, what's that all about? Why might that be interestingly to a religious person? What sort of issues is this opening up? And of course, you'll all know that there are many poems, many hymns, which uh, talk about this. Here's one by Joseph Addison. Many of you will know this very, very well. Uh, Addison is fascinated by the fact that the unwearied sun from day to day does his creator's power display and publishes to every land the work of an almighty hand. And what Addison there is doing really is looking at the heavens and asking, is there something behind these? Is there a bigger picture to which the stars, the moon, the planets, and so on actually point? And of course, it is a fascinating question. I remember many years ago uh, visiting Iran with some friends and uh, we travelled through the night in a bus because that, that was the best way to travel. You avoided the heat of the day. And the bus, being rather old, broke down in the middle of a desert. And as we all got out to wait for it to be fixed, we, we found ourselves in the midst of this solemn, black, still desert. And there above us were the stars blazing with an intensity I'd never seen here in England at all. And I think I found myself a bit overwhelmed. I felt very, very small. I felt there was something really significant beyond me and trying to figure out what it was. I think in many ways that sort of feeling is elicited by the stars. And many of you will know the very famous quote from Immanuel Kant, the, the well-known German philosopher who died in uh, Kaliningrad, he said, two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe. The more often and steadily we reflect upon them, the starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. And there is his gravestone. Interestingly, the lower text is in Russian and the one I've just quoted is there in German. So what Kant is getting at, I think, is this, that for him at least there was an external stimulus to think morally, to think philosophically, and that was the, this astonishing sight of the heavens, which raised for Kant some very interesting questions, as did, of course, this existence of some deep moral intuition within us. And for Kant, the task of the philosopher is to explain why these things are there and in what directions they take us. So for me, Kant is opening up some really interesting questions. And in this lecture today, what I hope to do is begin to engage with some of these as we explore this theme of watching the skies. And of course, today we think of astronomy and astrology as being very separate entities indeed. But in the ancient world, these were seen as actually quite closely entangled. That in some way, the stars, the moon and others were seen as potentially influencing human destiny and therefore gaining an accurate knowledge of their behavior was actually a good way of understanding how things might work out. And very often the scientific observations, which actually were made for astrological purposes, gradually fed into astronomical ways of thinking. But in many ways, the question I want to open up with you this afternoon is really this. It is, what, if anything, are the stars saying to us? I know it sounds a very naive question, but as we look at the stars, what are we seeing? Are we seeing, in effect, rather chilling reminders 
of our mortality. The stars have been there for ages. We're here only for an instant. And therefore, to look at the night sky is to regain a rather melancholy sense of our own finitude and transience. Or does this night sky in some ways point beyond itself, opening up new ways of thinking? Well, there are lots of people who have lots of thoughts on these things, and we'll explore some of these issues in this lecture. So let me begin by looking at somebody who took a fairly bleak view of the universe. This is the Persian astronomer Omar Khayyam, and many of you will know him through his very famous book, uh, The Rubaiyat, the, the collection of four-lined poems, which... Uh, became very, very influential in Victorian England through the translation of Edward Fitzgerald. And Omar Khayyam was absolutely clear that, in effect, the stars could blaze for all they liked, but they were of no use to us whatsoever. And many of you will know this uh, very famous stanza from this poem. That inverted bowl we call the sky... Where under crawling cooped we live and die. Lift not thy hands to it for help, for it rolls impotently on as thou or I. And so you could say that for Kayam, the night sky might be very, very beautiful. But in effect, it is saying to us, you are on your own. Don't look to us for any help. You've got to sort things out for yourselves. And of course, for Khayyam, the stars could be a, a melancholy symbol of the vastness of the universe and our own utter insignificance within it. So we could say that one way of beginning to think about the night sky is that it puts us in our place. We are very small. We are, in effect, short-lived compared with the universe. And therefore, in effect, it, it helps us to grasp that we are really rather small in terms of the affairs of the universe. That, of course, leaves open the question of whether we matter. But let's come back to that later. But there are others who would say, well, that, that may be true, but there is something about the night sky, something about the stars, that evokes an unspeakable sense of yearning for something that seems unattainable, a sense of longing for something really significant, which the night sky might heighten, but doesn't really seem to be able to satisfy. And maybe the stars are pointing to something mysterious, something unfathomable, which lies beyond them. And so that line of thought clearly is interesting. Kant begins to pick it up, and there are many other writers who do as well. And questions like this, I have to say, have really intrigued people since the human race began to think. And of course, you know, these might be pointless questions, you know, the sort of um, just ramblings of people who are unhappy with life and think the stars might point to something that's bigger and better lying beyond them. And yet there is this question, maybe we are meant to think such thoughts because it opens up a bigger vista, a grander way of seeing our universe and, of course, ourselves within it. So basically, that's the sort of question I want to try and explore with you this afternoon. It's almost as if we've been made to ask questions, to try and make sense of what we see around us and ask about how we fit into a greater scheme of things. Now, as we reflect on the wonder of the universe, I think we find questions being raised in our mind that both... <coughs> 
challenge and excite us. And certainly there are many who wonder if the silent beauty of the night sky could cast any light on the riddle of human destiny. And there are many who, in effect, would see that the stars are eliciting a sense of not belonging, in effect, opening up deep questions about whether our true destiny is here or somewhere else. And some of these writers are, 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 have no religious interest at all. Here's Shelley, for example, um, who's well known for his uh, essay on the necessity of atheism, but nevertheless recognizing there is something going on here which seems to merit attention. The desire of the moth for the star, of the night for the morrow, the devotion to something afar from the sphere of our sorrow. And that idea of being devoted to something afar, this sense that there is something beyond us, cants, you know, starry heaven above us, which in effect asks us whether there's some way of feeling we fit into this bigger picture of things, and that the stars in one sense are a trigger for these lines of thought that open up these deep questions within us. So there are many writers who have opened this up in many ways. One of the questions is, of course, whether we are in effect condemned to what I might call a form of naturalism. In other words, what you see is what you get. Let's, let's admire the night sky, but let's not get you know, carried away by the idea that it might be saying something to us or it might be symbolizing something which lies beyond us, which we are meant to, in effect, follow and eventually find. But there are many writers who will, in effect, say there's something that seems to make us want to rise upwards, to ask these deeper questions. And many of you will know these words from the, the, the poet John Gillespie McGee. Um, he was, um, in effect, a Second World War pilot who saw the action of rising up in a plane as almost like a symbol of the human desire to be liberated from bondage to earthly things and discovering something else. I've slipped the surly bonds of earth and danced the skies on laughter-silvered wings, put out my hand and touched the face of God. And many of you will know that Ronald Reagan actually quoted this poem uh, in that oration marking the, the, the disaster with, the, space, with the, um, the, the Explorer spacecraft some time ago. But it's a very interesting question to ask. Might our hopes and fears, in effect, help us to slip the surly bonds of earth and discover some bigger, some better, some richer way of being, existing, which is there for us to discover. So what I'm suggesting is that one way of seeing this sense of wonder that's evoked by the starry skies or perhaps other things like a beautiful landscape or a rainbow is in effect a symbol for something that lies beyond our grasp, yet in some way we know it's there and we feel its draw, its lure, its appeal, and wonder how we can take hold of this and begin to grasp this. And Matthew Arnold had this rather nice phrase. He spoke of a wistful, soft, tearful longing. Let me give you that phrase again. A wistful, soft, tearful longing. Uh, in effect, for something we don't quite know what it is, but nevertheless we feel it is there and we feel that we are being drawn by that. 
And for Arnold, this, um, this misty indefiniteness, if I can use that phrase, was basically a, a longing to be reconnected with a bigger picture of, ski, of things, be able to find our way into this bigger scheme of things and take up our rightful places. So I think there are some very interesting points that are being raised here. And let me show you a slide. Uh, this is one which many of you will have seen before. Um, just take a moment to look at it. It, it, it uh, in effect, shows a man whose back parts are firmly in this world, and yet his eyes and his mind are, in effect, breaking through some kind of barrier into another world. Now, this is very often described in textbooks as a medieval woodcut, which shows the worldview of its age. And it, that does make some sense, because certainly this idea was there in the Middle Ages, this idea of hearing the music of the spheres, the deep harmonies of the universe, which we weren't able to really overhear properly from our position on Earth. And it opens up very many interesting questions. But I need to say to you that we now know this is actually a 19th century invention. Um, it, it comes from a uh, book published by Camille Marion in 1888 called Meteorology. Uh, and he basically himself was apprenticed once as a woodcutter and was rather good at this sort of thing. And this is one of his productions. And in effect, he's opening up a very important question for discussion. The caption that accompanies this illustration in that work reads like this. A medieval missionary relates how he found the point where the sky and the earth touch. But although this is a 19th century invention, I think you'll agree it does give us a sort of visual framework, a way of looking at things, which does raise some very interesting questions. For example, if we are embedded on this side of the picture, the earthward side of the picture, do we see what lies beyond that barrier? Is it worth seeing? Does it say anything to us at all about who we are and what we're meant to be doing? So I thought it might be a good visual aid just to leave on the screen for a while as we begin to think about these questions. So what I'm going to do is begin by going back to the great astronomical debates of the 16th and 17th century, where people tried to figure out exactly how the heavens worked, how we fitted into things. And of course, many of you will know that the model of things that prevailed until the 1550s, really, goes back to um, the um, astronomer Ptolemy back in Egypt, who basically set out what really became the standard model that prevailed until Copernicus displaced it in 1543. And he was writing in the first half of the second century. And basically, in a very interesting work called the Amalgest, Ptolemy brought together existing ideas, and these are the key themes that he laid out. First of all, the Earth is at the center of the universe. In other words, this is where things happen. This is the most important place in the universe, and around us things happen, and we are able to observe them. Because all heavenly bodies, including the sun, rotate in circular paths around the earth. And that had to be modified. I mean, for um, uh, Ptolemy, 
being a good Platonist, you know, circles are the perfect two-dimensional figure, and therefore it was important philosophically that the planets and sun and moon and everything should orbit in circular orbits. But in fact, that didn't really work very well. So they kept the idea of circular orbits and in effect invented the idea of an epicycle, a circular motion imposed on circular motion, which allowed you to, to make sense of the observational evidence. However, as time progressed, this theory came under strain. The first two assumptions remained um, very, very widely accepted, but the third one became increasingly cumbersome. It seemed forced and unnatural, as you had to develop increasingly complex uh, circles within circles, and gradually people began to wonder, is there a better way of seeing this? And of course, you will know that gradually people began to think in terms of not the Earth, but the Sun being the centre of the system of which we are part. So in many ways, this is quite a radical departure. And the person we normally talk about in this connection is, of course, the Polish astronomer Nicholas Copernicus, who back in the um, early 16th century argued that, in effect, we should think of the planets and the Earth orbiting the sun. Copernicus was very clear that we could keep the moon. The moon did indeed orbit the Earth, but the Earth and all the other planets orbited the sun. And Copernicus kept this idea of circular orbits. The planets move at constant speeds in concentric circles around the sun. And the Earth, of course, in addition to rotating around the sun, also rotates on its own axis. So therefore, in effect, what we tend to think of as a sunrise, the sun, in effect, rotating around the Earth, rising above our horizon, it's actually much more the Earth rotating on its own axis, and as the Earth rotates downwards, so to speak, the sun appears to rise upwards. So Copernicus, in effect, was able to begin to give us another way of looking at things. And I think that's a very important point to emphasize, that as many of you will know, the word theory, for example, a scientific theory, a theory is a way you look at things, the Greek word theora, a way of seeing things. So we see things in a different way. We see the earth not anymore as the center of all things, but rather as a planet that is orbiting the sun. We see not the sun rising, but rather the earth rotating. The sun stays put, but as the earth rotates, the sun appears to rise above the horizon. So it is very much a changed way of looking at things. So it's a very elegant model in many ways, but it did not work quite as well as the textbooks suggest. Um, certainly, if you read some rather popular textbooks, you get the impression that uh, everybody just embraced this and said, this is wonderful. In fact, there was some hesitation because this new way of looking at things didn't actually explain the observational evidence as well as people had hoped. So one of the concerns was that there were some scientific reasons for asking whether either the model needed to be abandoned or more likely modified to make sense of things. 
And of course, there was some religious objection. As some people said, look, Psalm 119 verse 90 declares that God had, I quote, established the earth and it stands still. However, um, basically, it was soon pointed out that that translation was bad and really it was God established the earth which remains firm. It's not quite the same idea. Now, the real opposition to Copernicus came from other scientists, and they were worried that actually his theory did not explain the observational evidence as neatly as Copernicus had hoped. And we need to be honest here and say that Copernicus got several things right. I mean, the main thing was he was right in saying that the planets and the Earth orbit around the sun. But he, in effect, kept two key assumptions of Ptolemy's older system. Number one, that everything rotates in circular orbits and at constant speeds. And when the mathematics was done, the observations didn't really fit what the theory was saying. But there was another concern that many began to raise, including the Danish astronomer Tycho Brahe, who basically were worried about what we call the parallax effect. Now, I'll explain to you what this is. If Copernicus's theory was right, it meant that the appearance of what we call the fixed stars should change over the period of a year. Remember, at this time, people thought the stars were quite close. So if you imagine the Earth orbiting the sun, it's quite a, a, a wide um, diameter of about let's say about uh, 186 million miles. If you think about the Earth rotating around that, at one point it's 186 million miles at this side, then on the other side, surely the stars would look different from those two different perspectives. And uh, this Danish astronomer was very concerned that we did not see this parallax effect. And this, I think, led him to worry that the theory might not be right. Now, in fact, we now know the stars are so far away that you simply wouldn't expect to see this without very accurate instrumentation. And in fact, the um, very small parallax effect, which actually is invisible to the naked eye, was only uh, observed as a result of improvements in telescope design in the early 19th century. But for us now, we're quite happy and used to this. But there is this very interesting question. Many of you will have read the works of Sigmund Freud. And Freud argues that there were three people who really radically changed the way we thought about ourselves. One of them was Copernicus. After all, no longer did we stand on a ball called the Earth, which was the center of all things. We were displaced from the center. If anything now stood center of all things, it was the sun. And uh, in effect, Freud argued that this was something that really challenged our understanding of our status in the universe. For Freud, the second person was Charles Darwin, who in effect argued that we were not quite the special creatures we thought we were, that in effect the continuity between us and animals was much greater than we thought, and that, of course, was a bit of a, you know, a, bit of a blow to our self-esteem, you may be wondering who the third genius who um, called some things into question was, and of course, for Freud, that was Freud himself, who uh, pointed out that, you know, as a result of a steer of this subconsciousness, you know, we, we were not even in control of our own minds. 
But there is a point here, which is that, in effect, with this expansion of the astronomical vision of the universe, humanity has, in effect, become smaller and smaller and displaced from the centre of things. And so the question is, is that significant, and what does it mean? So let's begin to think more about this. And I've talked a bit about um, Copernicus, and I'm going to talk about somebody who you probably haven't heard of. This is Heinrich Wilhelm Olbers, O-L-B-E-R-S. And there is no reason why you should have heard of this man, but writing in 1826, he asked this question, why is the sky dark at night? Now, I need to say to you that, that um, many had asked that question before him. It's there very much in the writings, for example, of Edmund Halley, after whom a comet is named. But Olbers, in effect, made this a really significant question. Because Olbers simply made the point, look, suppose the universe is uniform. Suppose there are stars regularly placed throughout the universe. Then if you move, let's say, one unit from the Earth, then, okay, the stars at that distance are more remote, so they're fainter. But if you draw a sphere around that point, there'll be many more stars in that sphere. So actually the paradox is that for every unit that you think of, there's a constant number of, st of stars um, emitting light. So in effect, for every unit, there's the same amount of light impacting on the Earth, and therefore, the sky should not be dark at night. Yet it is. And so Olbers felt we needed an explanation of why this is the case. So if you imagine that the Earth stands at the center of a series of imaginary concentric shells, each of the same thickness, then in effect the number of stars contained within that shell is proportional to the square of its radius. Yet the light received on Earth is inversely proportional to the square of distance from the star to the Earth. And as I was saying, that means there'll be a uniform illumination from the stars. So there should be brightness at night. One answer which might explain Olbers' paradox is that if the universe is expanding, then some light will be redshifted so it simply doesn't get to us with its full intensity. Or if the universe is actually quite young, then it means that some light has yet to reach us. So one answer to Olbers' paradox is that the sky is dark at night because the universe is expanding. But in 1826, um, <coughs> they didn't know that. So the point I'm going to make is this that one of the issues that we think about nowadays when we think of watching the night sky is, in effect, this question of being aware that the universe is expanding. What does that say to us? Certainly, this is something that people um, really did not expect in the 19th century. As you may know, by the end of the 19th century, there was this consensus that physics basically had sorted everything out, and that the work of the next generation was basically going to be to measure constants to the next decimal place. There was no sense that any kind of radical rethinking of our understanding of the universe would be necessary. 
And so we find, for example, the great Swedish physicist Arrhenius, who won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 1903, writing a best-selling works of 1906 called Worlds in the Making. And in this he says, here is what the contemporary scientific understanding of our universe is. And his basic argument is that we have an infinite, self-perpetuating universe without beginning and without end. And based on what he describes as a recently discovered principle of the indestructibility of energy, he argues that basically the universe is fundamentally the same today as it always has been and always will be. He writes, matter, energy, and life have only varied as to shape and position in space. They might move around a bit, but overall, there's no fundamental change within the system as a whole. So if you and I had been meeting a century ago and talking about this, that would have been the dominant scientific theory of that period. But of course, things have changed since the First World War. And particularly during the period 1900 and 1931, astronomers began to, began to realize that things were more complicated. And I think that there are three things that really made us realize that the old way of thinking didn't really work that well. First of all, the number of stars that we could see began to rise remarkably as people began to realize the universe seemed to be a lot bigger than we had realized. And secondly, in particular, the work of Edwin Hubble, after whom, of course, the Space Telescope is named, led to the growing realization that there were other star systems beyond our galaxy. In other words, we are members of one galaxy, but there are other galaxies beyond us, these vast assemblies of stars, and that actually really made us realize that we are simply inhabitants of one galaxy when there are countless others there as well. Again, bringing home to us how really very small we are. And thirdly, the point which I made earlier, that the way these star systems beyond our galaxy were behaving suggested the universe was expanding. And it's a very, very difficult idea for us to get our heads around. I mean, we, we tend to ask questions like, well, if the universe is expanding, what is it expanding into? And I think uh, I have no answer to that, but it's a very interesting question to ask. But nevertheless, of course, it begins to raise all kinds of interesting questions. For example, what is the religious implication of this? I think that there are clearly issues here to be thought through. Because although I would never want to say that the idea of the origination of the universe and the idea of creation are the same thing, you can see that there might be some kind of connection between them which might invite exploration and reflection. And certainly that there were others who were concerned about this development. For example, in 1948, Fred Hoyle developed his steady-state theory of the universe, which held that the universe, although it was expanding, could not be have ha said to have had a beginning. In effect, matter was continuously created in order to fill in the voids arising from cosmic expansion. But many felt that that simply wasn't good enough to do justice 
to the growing evidence. And of course, as you will all know, in the 1960s, things begin to move even more quickly, partly because of what's called the cosmic background radiation. In other words, the afterglow of the Big Bang. And again, as you, as you might expect, this was discovered by accident by telephone engineers, uh, Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson, who are trying to sort out how you could use microwaves to, in effect, communicate without the need for wires. And as they tried to communicate with another station, they found that they kept getting this irritating hiss and tried to realign their antennae so they didn't get it. And gradually they realized this hiss was coming to them from outside Earth. And as people began to reflect on this, they began to realize that, in effect, this was the afterglow of the Big Bang, a sort of, um, a sort of, you know, a sort of heat glow at the microwave level. And certainly this really began to move people much more towards the idea of the universe having an origin. So where does this take us? What sort of idea does this open up for us? Now, you remember that one of the thoughts I was developing is, if you think about, for example, uh, Ptolemy's model, everything orbits around the Earth. The Earth stands at the center of all things, and therefore so do we. And as a result of modern astronomy, there has been gradual sense of displacement. To begin with, we're displaced from the center of the solar system. Then the solar system becomes simply one element, one star, with its planets in the midst of a vast, un a vast galaxy. And then we discover there are other galaxies beyond this. So in effect, we begin to realize we are very small indeed. So it does, I think, bring home to us um, why so many of us wonder, is there some bigger picture which helps us cope with that smallness? And in effect says, well, you may be small, but nonetheless, you are significant. And that, I think, is an important point. So let me go back to that uh, point I made about the Big Bang. How does that relate to, for example, a Christian understanding of creation? I think I need to say to you that um, the Christian narrative of creation and the scientific narrative about the origins of the universe are not identical. You can't just superimpose them and say these are the same things. They're not. They're different. They've got different angle of approaches. They've got different points of focus. But there clearly is some possibility for dialogue or even possibly convergence. And certainly we can begin, I think, to say that some very interesting questions have been opened up. And while the scientific narrative of the origins of the universe are not the same as a Christian narrative of creation, you could say that they might be entwined with each other, like, for example, the, um, the double helix of the, the DNA molecule. So the main point I want to make here is that we might think of having two different maps to begin to impose on what we now know of the heavens. Um, I think all of us are very used to the idea of using multiple maps. Uh, the philosopher Mary Midgley just says, look, for every area of human inquiry, we have to get used to the idea we use different toolkits and multiple maps. So to give you an example of this, let's think of a very famous event in Roman history, which basically is Caesar crossing the Rubicon with an army and in doing so provoking a political crisis in Rome. 
And what I want to say to you is you can perhaps think of there being two maps here. There's a physical map in which, in effect, Caesar takes an army, moves south from the Alps towards Rome, and at one point they cross a river called the Rubicon. And those of you who have seen photographs of the Rubicon will know it's not exactly a big river. So crossing it would not have been a particularly significant feat. But then you see there's a second map. And the second map, in effect, is political. It says, here is Italy, and here are here's, um, you know, Cisalpine Gaul, and here is Roman territory. And there's a border between them, and the border is marked at this point by the river Rubicon. So in effect, crossing the Rubicon may not be a major physical achievement, but it is a political action because, in effect, leading an army across that border is a declaration of war against Rome. So you see, the point is you can have a physical map which tells you part of the story, and you have a political map that tells you more. Put those together, you get a bigger picture of the same thing. And, of course, one of the questions is whether we use both scientific and religious maps to try and make sense of things such as, for example, the origins of the universe or indeed our own status and significance. Because as I've been highlighting throughout this lecture, as scientific um, endeavor has increased, we have become smaller and smaller in a bigger picture of things. And one question we might ask is whether there is a map that in effect we can use which says, well, okay, physically we are really quite small, but actually existentially or philosophically or religiously, we still are very important. And that seems to me to be a really important theme to examine because certainly we need to, in effect, face up to our position in the universe but realize that there is much more that could be said. And, of course, if I had time, I would talk, for example, about... Um, the idea of humanity as being created, the idea that this entails some kind of special relationship with God, and therefore, although we are small, we are loved and special, and that enables us to cope with some of the problems of living in this complex universe. But I want to move on now and look at some lines of poetry by John Keats. And many of you will know these lines. It's from that very long, rambling poem called Lamia, which some of you will have read and enjoyed, and I've just read. Um, and it, this is, I think, its best bit. And this is um, John Keats reflecting on Isaac Newton's reflections on the, the rainbow. So let me remind you that Newton's made many discoveries. One of them was if you pass a beam of white light through a prism, then the light gets broken up into its constituent colors, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. And Newton simply said that seems to be the same optical process that we see in a rainbow. And so at one level you could say that Newton had explained the rainbow as an optical phenomenon. And Keats here is expressing concern about this. And what I want to reflect with you is whether this is um, a real concern or whether it's an exaggerated concern, or whether he's just completely missed the point and there's nothing for us to think about here at all. Let me read it to you. You probably know this very well anyway. Do not all charms fly at the mere touch of cold philosophy. 
There was once an awful, there was an awful rainbow once in heaven. We know her woof, her texture, she is given in the dull catalogue of common things. Philosophy will clip an angel's wings. And it's a, it's a well-known line, and in many ways what Keats is saying is something like this. He's talking about philosophy, and he really means natural philosophy. In effect, what we might now call natural science. And what Keats is worried about is that this is cold, impersonal. It dissects nature. It stops nature being special. And his concern here is that this, in effect, means that we live in a world which is simply no longer special, perhaps even beautiful. And he uses the rainbow as an example. There was an awful, awful here in the sense of full of awe, awe-inspiring, not um, horrible. There was an awful rainbow once in heaven, and now, in effect, we've taken it to bits and reduced it. Look at this phrase, the dull catalogue of common things. And, you know, what, what Keats is worried about is, is, look, science takes things to bits, and, and you're left with this rather dull collection of bits and pieces. And what Keats is looking for is someone who will be allowed to take things to bits, but then put them back together again so you can appreciate them even more. And that's the line at the end that I think is really interesting. Philosophy will clip an angel's wings. What does that mean? I think it means something like this. What I think Keats is worrying about is that a a very reductionist scientific approach to nature or to human beings in effect reduces us to our physical components and prevents us from rising up and seeing a bigger picture. It's this idea of being able to see something bigger, to realize that although we are indeed made of atoms and molecules and lots of other things, that nevertheless we are special in some way. So Keats here is raising a concern. Uh, my own feeling is that actually he does overstate, that actually it's perfectly possible to say, look, we can understand the rainbow scientifically, that's fine, but perhaps we appreciate all the more for doing so, and it doesn't stop us appreciating its beauty and reflecting on it and being taken back with delight when we turn a corner or you know, looking over a hill, we suddenly see this rainbow and it really strikes us as being very beautiful and wonder. Now, some of you have read Richard Dawkins' book, Unweaving the Rainbow, which came out in 1998. And actually, he's really engaging with Keats, in particular, these lines. And what Dawkins is worried about is that Keats basically is simply critiquing science and really raising unhelpful objections to scientific advance. And I think actually Dawkins does make a fair point. Actually, there is an element here of simply resistance to scientific advance. But I think Keats would make a counterpoint. Keats would say, look, you know, we live in this world. It is very special. Um, and we want to try and understand this world and our own place within it. And that there are things in this world that, that really evoke a sense of awe or wonder. And in doing so, trigger off a process of reflection about what this world is all about and who we are. So I think Keats would say... I think if you press them very, very hard, that you can allow for the scientific study of nature without having to abandon 
deeper questions of meaning and value. If I could put it like this, I mean, maybe science is taking things to bits so we can see how they work, but we need some way of putting them back together again so we can understand what they mean. And Keats maybe is just saying, look, you know, we need more than an account of how things function. We want a deeper sense of what things and we actually mean. So we might say there's a need to bring together functionality and existential concern, by which I mean an understanding of how things work, but also an understanding of what we're all about. Many of my friends are medics, and I'm very pleased about that because they look after me quite well. Um, but, I mean, they, they often treat me as being a machine, you know, sort of something that goes wrong from time to time, and you fix it and so on. I don't mind being treated as a machine like that, but you and I actually are more than that. We're more than a piece of physical and biological and biochemical machinery. We're individuals who think about who we are and what our place in the greater scheme of things is. And somehow we need to have this intellectual framework which holds together questions of how we function and what we mean, what we are meant to be doing. So it seems to me there's a lot of things here that we could discuss further. And it seems to me that um, Dawkins and Keats actually have a very interesting conversation which you and I can join in. Because it's very much about whether science tells us all that there is to be known, or whether in effect it illuminates things so we can see them a different way, and thus figure out these deeper questions in a more informed way. So I find myself sort of way, you know, sort of between Keats and Dawkins, thinking they're both making good points, but actually we need the whole truth rather than the single truths that each of them want to emphasize. So let me go back to that uh, experience I described at the beginning of this lecture. Again, you know, I described to you how in the Iranian desert, in the middle of the night, cold, dark, solemn, still, I left the bus, walked out into the desert, and saw the night sky and felt a sense of wonder. Now, I'm sure many of you here this afternoon will have had some very, very similar experience. It might be, you know, seeing a desert. It might be seeing a beautiful landscape. It might be, well, I don't know. But I'm sure most of you will know that sense of being overwhelmed by the beauty or the wonder or the vastness of our natural world. Where does that sense of wonder take us? Some of you will have read the German romantic poet Goethe, and Goethe said, well, you know, you can't go behind or beyond the sense of, he used the German word, erstaunen, wonder, you know, astonishment. Just enjoy the experience. But other writers, like Aristotle, would say that wonder is a gateway. It's because you are overwhelmed by, for example, the vastness of nature that you yearn to try and understand it better. And there is, I think, a sense in which uh, experiencing a sense of wonder about the world, indeed even about ourselves, very often is a gateway to thinking about this. It is so wonderful, I want to try and understand this better. And that seems to me to be a very good motivation for doing natural science. But it is about more than just science. Because a sense of wonder you know, at the beauty or the vastness of nature can go in other directions as well. It doesn't stop us wanting to try to understand it, 
but perhaps it also intimates that there is something more that's there to be explored and to be discovered. So we might think of a verse from the Psalms, Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. It's not saying that, that the beauty of night sky proves God's existence. It's much more that uh, our appreciation of the nature of God is enhanced and expanded by the beauty of the night sky. That the idea of God might be a very abstract idea, it's all a rational thought, but when you look at the beauty of the natural world and say that is the result of God's creation, then that enriches your understanding of God. So in speaking about watching the heavens, partly I'm talking about let's try and understand how the heavens work. I want to emphasize that is a very noble and important thing to do. But I also want to say that it opens up ways of thinking about ourselves, who we are, whether we matter, and so on. And as I've said in earlier lectures, when you look at um, psychologists who are trying to figure out not so much how the universe works, but how we work, then we discover that actually there are a whole series of things which we loosely call meaning, which are really very important to us in living out a life in this world. And there are questions like, who am I? Why am I here? What is the point of life? What am I meant to be doing? I want to suggest to you that there is no reason why trying to figure out how the universe works and trying to figure out what we are meant to be doing and who we are are inconsistent with each other. In many ways, I'm saying that perhaps we need a richer vision of reality, a richer understanding of who we are if we're going to be able to make sense of the complexity of ourselves and this world which we inhabit. So I think the theme of watching the heavens really is very useful. And let me end with this slide that I mentioned earlier in this lecture. And again, you might like just to look at it and, and look at it and listen to me, okay? I mean, basically, this here, as I was saying, is a woodcut from the 1890s. Um, but it is framing what I think is a very interesting question. Can you stay in this world? In other words, on the earthly side of that barrier. Or do you need to stick your head through the barrier, see a bigger picture, enjoy it for a while, then come back into the earthly side of the picture and live out life in that knowledge? In other words, having seen a bigger picture, the bigger picture makes sense of who you are, what this place you're living in is, and what you're meant to be doing there. And so in many ways, ladies and gentlemen, I'm just saying that looking at the heavens really is a wonderful way of thinking about the development of science. It's also one way of thinking about who we are and how we fit into a bigger scheme of things. And maybe this uh, 19th century woodcut is a very useful visual aid in thinking about understanding the world and our place within it. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. <clears throat>